Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Five Things Podcast, where we dive deep into five topics from social media and share our takeaways for the week. Before we get into this week's five things, just a quick reminder that the fourth and final installment in the Gray Matter bonus series, The Pillars of Creativity, will be out this week. We'll be featuring John Petrulis, Gray's global CCO, chatting with Justine Armour, our New York office CCO, and a former guest of the five things. And they'll be chatting about audacity. It'll be available starting Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Now we will dive into the five things. Joining me this week, podcast regulars, Amanda Davis, Beth Rolfs. Hello, hello. Morning, Kenny. Hello, Kenny. Oh, Amanda, how many times do we have to tell you not to attribute a time of day to the recording of this podcast? It's okay. I like it. At this point, it's it's what we do. It Good is. Morning. I feel like I can't say something else. That's my thing yeah. now, regardless yeah. of time of day. Well, well who's good, hosting? good morning, Amanda. <laughs> and to all of those listening, good morning, good afternoon, and good night from all of us. All right. Let's dive in because we got some we got some good ones this week. Uh, we have Facebook teasing audio rooms. Facebook adding a new volunteer feature. Volunteers of America. Uh, we have Instagram for kids uh, being challenged, which is a follow up story from something we talked about on a previous pod. We have Twitter analyzing the harmful impacts of their algorithm. And for those of you at home, the drinking game this week, algorithm is the word. So best of luck to you. And then finally, an NFT became real estate. We will talk about WTF is an NFT and tell you a little bit about this story. With that, Amanda, kick us off. Facebook teasing audio rooms. All right. Audio again, but this week's kind of a big update. Facebook announced actually a suite of social audio products. Um, we recently talked about this as potentially being a competitor to Clubhouse, but actually Mark Zuckerberg announced a couple of different features coming to the platform. One being an audio only version of their existing rooms product, which is a video call. So when you turn a video call into an audio version, it is a phone call, um, but we'll see what they do with it. There's also, again, a product that is very similar to Clubhouse. It seems like it has the same functionality, but we'll be learning more about it. There is another new option that lets users record and share audio notes to their newsfeed. I know that Twitter did this with, I think it was called Voice Notes. Don't know if that was really ever adopted, but we'll see. And then the last one um, is an interface for discovering and listening to podcasts, which will actually be aided by Spotify. So they kind of came out and made this big announcement for all these social audio features coming. Obviously, Facebook is trying to put, you know, a stake in the ground um, by launching this all together, whereas these updates are coming on the other platforms kind of piecemeal. So, you know, a lot of people, including us, have questioned, you know, how long is Clubhouse use case going to be relevant? So curious to see how these other features play together, but... I don't see anything groundbreaking and I think we're still really early and in a different, you know, use case than we will be in a year from now. Social audio is not a trend. Social audio is not a channel. It is a feature of a channel. The thing that makes Facebook special still to this day, and I was having a conversation with someone about this recently is groups. People that are still using Facebook are using it for groups. 
the ability to host an audio room in a group is good. One of the big knocks on Clubhouse is that it's it's hard to curate. And I think if you're leveraging something like groups, it makes it easier to curate. Um, you know, there's moderation control issues with uh, Clubhouse that people are talking about that are making it feel a little bit toxic. Honestly, I, I don't think this is groundbreaking. It actually is one of those features that's right for Facebook uh, when, when it's used correctly. So, uh, you know, nothing earth shattering here, but definitely I think every platform is going to have some sort of audio component, which makes perfect sense. LinkedIn, professional audio, Twitter, topical audio. Facebook, you know, organizational audio, it, it all makes sense. Um, so I don't see these as clubhouse copycats. I see these as evolutions of a channel inspired by clubhouse to be real. Um, yeah. If memory think, serves, Facebook has wanted to get into the audio call space for a while. So not super surprising, but I agree with you, Kenny. I think it actually feels right. Yeah. All right, let's keep rolling. Facebook is adding a new volunteer feature. Beth, what's going on? This is a nice, easy one. Um, so Facebook is adding a volunteer feature for Earth Day. The volunteer feature is kind of coupled with a few different features as well, some around um, getting more information about Earth Day and then also information on climate change. They're also putting up their um, information labels to dissuade misinformation about climate change. I think this is all very timely with what's going on right now um, in U.S. politics with, you know, Biden making a stance about 2030 reducing um, half of our emissions. So it's, it's, you know, Facebook again meeting kind of the demand of making sure that the information that is topical is correct, it's out there. The cool thing about the volunteer feature is it will help you find the same way their COVID features helped you find places to get tested. This will help you find ways to volunteer on Earth Day, which is great. Facebook has always stood for a more open and connected world. Features like this continue to live into that purpose of being a more open and connected world. And they do it in a meaningful way. Uh, we have not always been kind to Facebook on this pod, but I think in this instance, we are, you know, I think there's something good here. Um, Gen Z and millennial consumers are the most socially active and socially conscious consumers out there in the world. And we'll be ushering in a, a new, a new, uh, not ushering in, they have ushered in a new thought around consumerism and it being, you know, driven by the right social pillars and morals and whatnot. So I think this makes sense and it's right for Facebook and it's right in line with what they've always done. And, you know, Facebook two for two today. Bravo. Um, <laughs> all right, Amanda, Instagram for kids. We talked about this on a pod a few weeks ago and now it's being challenged. What's happening? Yeah. Instagram for kids. It sounds creepy to even say it. Um, so yeah, they started talking about potentially this being an extension of Instagram that creates almost like a safe space for users under 13. You know, the way they were positioning it is it lets, you know, especially that 10 to 13 age range, be creative and create content and keep in touch with friends. Um, but as soon as that conversation started, I think we had the same, you know, reaction of there's a lot of issues with this as a platform and, and its reason for existing. So this week, a coalition, which actually includes the Consumer Federation of America and the Parents Television and Media Council, 
um, wrote a letter, an open letter, and announced their opposition to the app. Um, they made some other good points too. You know, there's the mental health aspect. When kids are under 13, they don't really know how social interactions should work, what's okay and what's not okay. So it's not really the time to be pulling them into another app. Um, but also too, you know, I think there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of accounts that are likely underage on the platform already. And their approach was that, you know, these accounts aren't going to, you know, delete their normal Instagram account and go to a baby version of the account. That's not going to happen. So really what this seems like it's aimed to do, according to this letter, is basically bring new kids into the app that aren't on any app at all. So, you know, you kind of lose that storyline of like pulling, you know, underage kids from Instagram app to another app. That's likely not going to happen. They're not going to adopt another feature. They're just going to stay where they are. So, you know, this letter, I think, does a great job of summing up, you know, the concerns, the way that social media can impact kids under 13, especially. Um, and still, it's it's to note, like, Facebook hasn't actually decided whether they're going to launch Instagram for kids, um, but they've still been discussing it and also looking at other options for how to cater to the younger user. Um, you know, I think this is interesting, and I'm glad that this is a conversation that, you know, this coalition feels passionately about. I get excited by this because I think of this as almost the second wave of social media. You know, we had the last 20 years to figure out how does this all work. It's a little bit of Wild West. Now we get to take those learnings and actually apply it to policy and the way that platforms operate and what they're built for and reset the way that we look at the platforms with the learnings that we've gotten. So more to see, but it's good that this is a conversation that a lot of people feel passionate about. That was extremely well communicated. And out of all of it, all I can keep thinking about is Wild West by Will Smith. <laughs> Wild, wild west. Um, no, that was that was great, Amanda. Thank you. And I think um, the networks are big, and challenging them to to really think through these products and their implications is critical. We're now dealing with the fallout of what social media has done to society on the whole. And if we're going to continue to use these channels, it's important for us to be responsible in how we use them. Um, Beth. Yes. Apparently. Apparently. The Twitter algorithm can be harmful. I mean, I have been saying this forever. All algorithms can be harmful. Um, okay, so what is but, Twitter doing to analyze that? Right. So Twitter has begun analyzing the harmful impacts of its algorithms on its users. Um, it's part of their new initiatives around responsible machine learning. And they're essentially trying to assess any unintentional harm that is caused by the algorithm. Um, you know, all, I think most harm that comes from algorithms is unintentional, but they have a team of engineers, researchers, data scientists um, that are looking into kind of the algorithmic biases and how they impact, negatively impact specifically users. So they're first taking on racial and gender bias and looking at how the content that people are being served are either enforcing these biases, creating these biases. They're also going to look into um, different racial subgroups. They're going to look at different political ideologies. I think it's really important work. I'm very happy that they're doing it. Um, they have also said, though, that this does not necessarily mean that there will be grand product changes 
or even changes to their algorithm coming out of this. So there's a part of me that I'm like, so is this just an interesting research project for a headline? Or is this going to shed some light on what, you know, how platforms are being used, how they're swaying public opinion, how they're increasing otherness in our society? I think it might shine a light on it. We'll see what solutions come from it. You, Either you way, had, it makes me nerd out. <laughs> you had me in the first half, and then the fact that they aren't committing to making any changes based on what they learn, that's a strange... Because, Amanda, you can't just blanketly say, I'm going to, whatever the this tells me, we're going to operate against it. I think Twitter is right. fairly responsible by comparison with the other channels. And if anybody's going to take these learnings and come up with a responsible approach, to me, I think it is Twitter. So I'm a little bit more optimistic about it than maybe you are, but I don't know. That's par. That's par for the course. <laughs> <laughs> I think just the fact that it's happening is actually pretty huge. Like that says a lot about how much we've grown to understand the impact of these platforms on our mental health, our social interactions, and that, you know, we're going to learn about it and then maybe change will happen from it. But even if product change doesn't happen, I think the collective knowledge of how it's impacting us will help. And there is, you know, a good nature of like competitiveness between the platforms to kind of be the platform that has, you know, figured out their algorithm issues, has crushed these problems that we've seen in the last couple of years. So if nothing else, you know, maybe it will prompt the other platforms to do the same thing. Yeah, the thought leadership part of it will be important as well. Good point, Amanda. Okay, so I'm going to reserve a little bit of our last thing here with some time for us to talk about it. So um, the, the headline here and the thing is that an NFT has become real estate. Now, I want to take a step back. I believe this is the first time we're really talking about NFTs on the podcast. So let me do a quick 101 primer for those who have not experienced the world of NFTs. NFTs allow you to buy, sell, trade ownership of a unique digital item, and it's all managed and tracked and logged in the blockchain ledger. NFT stands for non-fungible token, and basically it can be anything digital. GIFs, clips, a song, something from a video game, a drawing, it, it can literally be anything that's digital. And it can be one of a kind, like a very, very rare piece of art, or it can have a few copies, like say uh, a trading card, uh, uh, basketball, baseball, football card, whatever it may be. And the blockchain ledger keeps track of who owns it uh, on file so that it cannot be replicated. So, uh, you know, you think about it, there's things like NBA Top Shot, which uh, takes clips from the NBA and creates uh, various copies of them. And there are limited edition ones and there are more common ones. Um, if you want to know more about NFTs and Top Shot, you can read the article that I wrote for Adweek, um, which was quite interesting. We have seen brands jump into the game on this. Our very own Pringles created the Crypto Crisp 
which was a limited edition flavor, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me because you're listening to me, um, of Pringles, which there were only, um, you know, there were only 50 of those made, which is, is kind of interesting. And they sold for the price of a can of Pringles uh, for $2. And um, the highest bidder actually bought one for over four grand. Um, so you can see how scarcity drives demand. And in this instance, with this story, uh, a, a real estate broker in Thousand Oaks, California, actually created a kind of psychedelic video of the home that uh, he was selling. And in, and in doing so, actually like paired the real estate listing of the actual home with the piece of art. So when you bought the home, you bought the NFT. And it has the distinction of being the first ever um, artwork and home combo in real estate. And the, you know, according to the, the, the broker, it was less about the significance of the art as it is the significance of using a platform like NFTs to help sell the home. And it, it's really kind of fascinating um, that the art is, is one of a kind. It's, it's no different than if, say, um, you know, you bought a home that came with an original piece of artwork where there was only one of one. Um, I think what troubles people in the NFT space is understanding the value of a something that is digital that they could see copied a million times versus something physical, which they're holding in their hand. So in the last five minutes of this podcast, what do you guys think about this? I think I've, lo I've been loving the NFT conversation because I think what we've talked about or what everybody has talked about over the last month is really just the tip of the iceberg. It's not the idea of an NFT being valuable because it's an NFT. It's about the ways that it's applied to the kind of things that we're buying, the way that we're, you know, selling and buying art, the way that we're collecting valuables and things like that. And it does feel maybe it's early to your point, Kenny, for people to really wrap their heads around, you know, buying the Mona Lisa versus buying the Mona Lisa printed on a t-shirt. Um, but I think we've really only scratch the surface of how NFT technology will be used. And it feels big, um, but it's actually a lot bigger than the use of right now. I totally agree. I think like, for me, I'm not skeptical by any means. That's the wrong word. But I think the way that society interacts with NFTs and thinks about NFTs two years from now will be totally different. So it's like, is this something you would want to invest in now? Or do you want to wait for it to mature a little bit longer? So that's that's where it's so fascinating what happened with Top Shot. Because what happened was there was a few, a small group of um, collectors who made a ton of money up front because when the market catapulted because people got excited about it, there was a ton of back and forth. And then all of these people came in and they spent all of this money, all this um basically converted dollars into Ethereum, uh, which is a crypto uh, currency. And were, they, they bought a ton of these top shots and then it plummeted in value. And people were like, this is a racket. I can't withdraw my cash. I lost all this money and blah, blah, blah. It's not, and in a lot of ways, they, they, millions of people got involved without actually knowing what it was. I personally hold 55 top shots. My play with the top shots are actually to hold them as long as humanly possible, because I think five years from now, when the market becomes more refined and people understand the value of NFTs, they're going to look at my portfolio and be like, 
or my collection rather and be like oh my god look at all of these original you know first gen top shots um uh, it's kind of like the people who have you know first edition harry potter books or first edition playing you know trading cards so the the common misconception is treating it like a day trader and that's what pe- while sitting at home you know, the, the Wall Street bets community looks at anything and says, how can I make a quick buck? Um, interestingly enough, what Dapper Labs and the, t- and the team who manages Top Shot is doing is they are individually going user by user and confirming their ability to withdraw using their um, driver's license, social security number, making sure there's no duplicate accounts, you know, protecting sort of the sanctity of, of, the, of the platform. And in doing so, like people are, literally using their credit cards to buy these things and then not realizing that they're not going to be able to get their cash for a little bit of time. Um, so all that to say, this NFT conversation is the, the baby is in the womb still with NFTs. Like we are not even close to being where this It's also, is. everything is kind of falling under the blanket of NFTs right now because it's so new and because people are really discovering it. But like that behavior that you're describing, the behavior in the art world, like, they will all have different approaches. Like maybe there will be NFTs that make sense to day trade and short sell. Maybe there will be NFTs that make sense to invest now. And in five years, it'll be worth something in 10 years and 20 years. So I think the idea that all NFTs will offer the same function and be used the same way is what we have yet to pull apart and explore. Like this isn't much different than collecting stamps or collecting art or any of those other things. Agreed. Yeah, I think like my monetary policy background makes this a little tricky for me because it's like there's nothing backing the value of this except the perception of the value from which is the other buyers by the way not true by the way by the way is fiat meaning it's backed by the government so like there's but it's not currency it's a whole let me ask you this question i have I, i have a first edition harry potter book i could take that harry potter book and make photocopies of every single page and still have the same exact version of Harry Potter. The point being, yep. the point being that we as a society attribute value to everything. We attribute value to everything. Is, that's not true though. That book is only as valuable as the person who's willing to pay for it assesses it is. And so is so it, like, and so if are, there is no market, you you have no value to that book. That's what where are. U.S. currency, right? No, that's what I mean. It's like it's it's ripe for bubbles, and that's why you see the value so erratically move because it's it's based off of perception versus if a strong backing. If you treat NFTs like stocks, you are thinking about NFTs cor- incorrectly. If you treat NFTs right. like, uh, you know, f- uh really valuable Your bottles of wine Harry or the Harry Potter yeah. book, that's more in line with what it is. And it's just the value of what, right. that's how I think about it. If you treat it like a stock, I, yeah, you're, you're totally right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's where like, it's hard to get behind sometimes. I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Kenny. We're yeah. saying the same thing. We are indeed. All it's, right. It's all very interesting. We are, we are at time and I appreciate you all listening. Uh, we will continue to talk about, all of these things, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and NFTs. 
So please be sure to join us next week. If you don't follow us already, you can follow us on Apple and Spotify. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcastsecretary.com. As always, I am beyond thankful for Amanda and Beth being here with me today to talk about all of these amazing things. We hope you will tune in again next week. And don't forget to stay safe, stay smart, stay social. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Petty and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.